0: When she was just 19 years old, she began working for the family business, a new restaurant chain, a small chain known as (laughs) Chick-fil-A. Trudy Kathy White has lived a fascinating life that has included travel to Israel. Coming up, we'll hear some of her favorite reflections from the Holy Land. Also, we'll take an in-depth look at the top stories from Israel and the region, plus answers to your questions, all on the one-hour flyover of the Middle East that we call The Land and the Book. Our host is a one-of-a-kind expert, Dr. Charlie Dyer, who has traveled to the Holy Land more than 100 times. I'm John Gager, inviting you to look with us at the stories shaping today's Middle East. Charlie, busy week in the Middle East.
1: Boy, John, it is, although it never is not a busy week. It's amazing,
0: isn't it? Uh, but it always gives us something to talk about, doesn't it? That's for sure. Well, starting with the last Sunday, there was a confrontation on the Temple Mount as Muslims there last Sunday protested allowing Jews to visit the site on Tish Ba'av. What exactly happened and what was the basis for the protests? Well,
1: the first thing we need to do is sort out fact from fiction in all the different reports. Clashes took place on the Temple Mount between the Muslim protesters and the police before any Jewish visitors actually arrived at the site. Uh, Reports in Muslim news sources called the incident a Jewish assault on Al-Aqsa. Hamas called it a provocation. Iran's news agency said Jewish settlers stormed the Al-Aqsa Mosque. The Palestinian Authority called it a grave threat to security and stability. Now, while that all sounds serious, here's the reality. Around 1,600 Jewish visitors were allowed up on the Temple Mount on Tisha B'Av to view the place where the first and second temples once stood. Uh, This date is the date when the two temples supposedly were destroyed historically. Uh, Photos of the visit show small groups of Jewish individuals walking in the open areas on the site, just like other tourists. They weren't chanting or protesting. They didn't enter the Al-Aqsa Mosque or the Dome of the Rock. The Muslim demonstrators clashed with the police to try to force the police to withdraw permission for those individuals to visit, even though Israel has promised to guarantee free access to all holy sites for all religious groups. Muslims can visit the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, just like Christians can freely visit the Western Wall, and Jewish groups can visit the Temple Mount. Israeli Prime Minister Bennett refused to buckle to the threats and made it clear that such visits were allowed and would continue. Had he given in to those threats, it would have sent a message that violence or even the threat of violence will work to undermine Israel's laws and policies. Uh, One key takeaway from this, though, is the reminder that media outlets frame Israel's policies in as bad a light as possible. This wasn't an assault on the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It was a consistent enforcement of a policy of free and open access that has been in effect for some time. One other point, the real issue in much of what happens and what's reported is shaped by one's religious perspective. For example, last week, I reported on the discovery of a section of Jerusalem's wall that was built during the first temple period before the Babylonian captivity. The wall is a fact, and so are the historical details of that period as recorded in the Bible. But That didn't stop Hamas from claiming the announcement was Israel's attempt to falsify and steal history, as if the uncovered wall and biblical account don't actually exist. Hmm. The reality is that Jerusalem was the capital of a Jewish kingdom, and two separate Jewish temples stood on what's now the Temple Mount. It's actually Hamas that's trying to falsify history, and sadly, many news outlets accurately reported their false statements without also reporting that the statements were historically inaccurate.
0: But Charlie, back to the, uh, the actual clash. I mean, is this not just one more way that uh, the new prime minister was being tested ultimately?
1: That's exactly what it was. You know, it's a new government with a left-leaning edge to it, and they were pushing back, seeing if this government would collapse. Uh, thankfully, Bennett
0: stood strong. Incidents of anti-Semitism have been on the rise in our country, especially following the recent conflict between Israel and Hamas. How serious is the problem, Charlie, and, and what do we need to know to help counteract it? It is a serious
1: problem, and it's one that does seem to be growing. There was a 75% increase in anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. following the war with Hamas. And the newest form of anti-Semitism is anti-Zionism. Uh, This is where individuals claim to be speaking only against Israel as a country, but where anti-Zionism is used as an excuse to discriminate against and target Jews for their possible association with the Jewish state. Much of this anti-Zionism is being promoted by those who are part of the radical left. Uh, They're trying to frame the Israel-Palestinian issue as one of racial prejudice and power and privilege. Words like disproportionality are being used to attack Israel for defending itself against the thousands of rockets launched by Hamas as though it's somehow unfair for Israel to protect its citizens by effectively hitting back at Hamas for launching those missiles in the first place. Israel is also being accused of genocide, which is an emotionally loaded term. You know, Genocide, by definition, is an act intended to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group Genocide's what the Nazis tried to do to the Jews in World War II. It's what the Ottoman Empire tried to do to the Armenians in World War One. It's what happened in 1994 back in Rwanda when half a million Tutsis were slaughtered. But by no stretch of the imagination can Israel's actions be classified as genocide. 20% of the citizens of Israel are Arab. And when Israel responded to Hamas and Hezbollah, they do everything possible to avoid civilian casualties. But by using such loaded words, those attacking Israel and the Jewish people are trying to justify promoting their own hatred. Followers of Jesus need to arm themselves with information to be able to stand up and answer those kind of accusations. And a good place to start is with our program. But I think our listeners can also go online to www.standwithus.com. That's www.standwithus.com. It's a good resource for information. And they can also write to their congressional representative and let them know they support Israel's right to exist as a nation and that we want our representatives to do so as well.
0: You're listening to The Land and the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. We're looking at current events from the Middle East. The economic crisis in Lebanon continues to intensify, and so does the rhetoric between Israel and Hezbollah. Could Lebanon's failing economy and Hezbollah's belligerence push the two countries
1: into conflict? Uh, The World Bank has said Lebanon's current economic crisis is among the world's worst since 1850, and it's going back a long time. Uh, The blast at Beirut's port last year was one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in history. Their economy has contracted Over 40% in the past two years, the value of their currency, the Lebanese pound, has dropped by 90%. Nearly half the population is living in poverty. That's all a mixture for a great problem. And the country hasn't been able to form a government to lead it forward. The former prime minister who was tasked with that gave up last week, causing even more turmoil. Now, in all that chaos, Hezbollah and Iran see an opportunity, and they're trying to exploit it. Iran has pumped both weapons and money into Hezbollah. And with those outside funds, Hezbollah's forces are better armed and better paid than those in Lebanon. They're becoming the dominant force in Lebanon, and Iran would love to control Lebanon through them. Their goal is to turn Lebanon into another client state. Now, it's hard to imagine Israel allowing Iran to take over Lebanon, so that has the potential of pushing the two countries into greater conflict. The key right now could be France and Saudi Arabia. France has a historic interest in Lebanon and Saudi Arabia sees an expanding Shiite influence as a threat against their country and the Sunni population in the region. So the question is, can France and Saudi Arabia help Lebanon form a stable government that would open the door for aid to flow in? Sadly, time's running out, so the options are limited and Mm -hmm. the situation really is desperate.
0: Iran's new hardline president takes office on August the 5th, Could the U.S. and Iran reach agreement on resuming the nuclear accord before he takes office? And regardless of when it might happen, what sort of changes should we expect in any deal?
1: Uh, Most reports suggest that an agreement before August 5th is extremely unlikely. Uh, The outgoing president, Rouhani, issued a report criticizing the Islamic Republic's top decision makers for not allowing his government to reach a deal. He indicated a deal was clearly possible. It could have been signed months ago had the top leaders not blocked it. And without naming names, he means the Ayatollah. Uh, The report was likely prepared to help protect him from possible criminal charges for his actions while in office. And while the report suggests that Ayatollah Khamenei didn't want his so-called moderate president to receive credit for any benefits to the economy that might come from the U.S. dropping its sanctions following a deal, He'd like those benefits to accrue to his hand-picked hardline successor. The new incoming president isn't well-liked by most Iranians, but claiming credit for improving the economy, well, that would increase his approval rating. Now, all that assumes an agreement can be reached. The U.S. has appeared to be at least somewhat reluctant, but sources within the negotiations suggest a deal is all but done. And the Iranians claim it will return to the original agreement without major changes and will drop all sanctions. Now, if that's true, That would be a win for Iran, but a great concern to Israel, who see it as a clear path to Iran having nuclear weapons in a very short time.
0: And that's a look at current events. A conversation with the only daughter of the founder of Chick-fil-A restaurants, next on The Land and the Book. When she was just 19 years old, Trudy began working for the family business. She became an operator for a newer restaurant chain known as Chick-fil-A. Working out of Birmingham, Alabama, she became the youngest operator at that time. She's lived a fascinating life that has included travel to Israel. Her stories from growing up, her stories from the Holy Land, all ahead on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger welcoming you on back. Let's pause for a minute and think about ways that we can build bridges into the lives of our Jewish friends. So you've got this relationship with your Jewish friend and you're, you're honest enough with each other that you can talk about Yeshua and you can talk about the Old Testament. Have you ever thought about connecting them? Dr. Michael Rydelnik has. He's the editor of the Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy. How could I use uh, this book, Michael, the, the Old Testament itself, to connect my friend with Yeshua in the Old Testament?
2: Well, So often people say, well, we're still waiting for the Messiah. And you say, he's come already. And I always say, how do you know he shouldn't have come already. And they say, well, no, we just can't know when he's coming. Well, actually, in Daniel 9, 9 twenty four through 27, it gives a wonderful description of when Messiah should have come. Now, in the handbook, it gives real good details about how to understand the coming of the Messiah and when he was supposed to have come. But simply put, It gives us a clue about when Messiah should have been here, even if you don't get the whole thing about the weeks and the calculations. and all, You'll understand (laughs) it from reading the book. It's not that hard, but here's the key. It says, afterwards, the people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come is this ruler that will come from the Roman Empire. The people, not him, but the people, the Romans, will destroy the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary. When did that happen? When did the Romans destroy Jerusalem and the temple? Well, AD 70. So that means that the Messiah should have come and then afterward that happens. So Messiah should have been here by the first century. And so here's, I was explained to me, how is it? Well, I guess he didn't come because we weren't good enough. No, that's the very reason he did come. We were not good enough. We failed and Messiah came and it says he was cut off but not for himself, he was cut off for us and he came by the first century.
0: Dr. Michael Rydalik, professor of Jewish studies at Moody Bible Institute, here on The Land and the Book. Well, it's great to have you with us on today's edition of The Land and the Book. I want you to meet Trudy Kathy White, the only daughter of Chick-fil-A founder Truett Cathy and Jeanette Kathy. Like her dad, she is a beloved leader, communicator, and entrepreneur, as well as a best-selling author. And like her mother, Trudy lives her life based on biblical principles and by serving and loving others. She's written A Quiet Strength. Hey, thanks for spending time with us today, Trudy.
3: My pleasure, John. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Well, A Quiet Strength is a book about your mom, the life that she lived, the example that she left as a follower of Christ. But because our program is based on the Middle East, we're going to start weaving biblical places and themes throughout as we share your story. First, let me ask you, when you traveled to Israel, what surprised you the most when you finally saw the Holy Land for yourself? What was smaller or bigger or maybe even shocking to you?
3: You know, John, what, what I recall the most about that experience was remembering a song that my mother sang often around the house. I don't know the title of it, but I remember one of the lines is, I walk today— where Jesus walked and felt his presence there. Mm -hmm. Um, We know that God is with us all the time, no matter where we are. But it was something about being in that particular place that reminded me of just the awesomeness of God's presence and power with us. And it was unbelievable to really walk those streets and walk the paths and walk those areas and think Jesus walked through this place and the impact that he had on my mother's life and on my life as a result uh, from his word for sure.
0: How about a favorite story about your experience in the Holy Land? I bet uh, even now when you get together with family and friends, something bubbles to the surface uh, from that experience.
3: Most definitely. When we went, uh, John, we decided to take our oldest daughter and her husband and their three oldest children. So we actually went with grandchildren as well. And it was phenomenal to walk along the Sea of Galilee and talk about um, Jesus and the crowds, how they followed him. Like he could never kind of get away from anybody. And we, we were able to talk with our grandchildren about the power of influence that we can have you know, we impress people from a distance, but we can really influence them when we let them get up close around us. So we talked about this idea that how Jesus was followed by the crowds, that He took time to take notice of the little things, the needs of people around Him. So was fascinating to be able to do that with our with our own grandchildren, see them ask questions. We yes. kind of reenacted uh, the Last Supper together in a particular area with a guide that was with us, and it makes everything that you read in God's Word just kind of come to life.
0: Today on The Land and the Book, we're honored to welcome the daughter of the founder of Chick-fil-A, Trudy Kathy White. Take us, uh, Trudy, to a biblical passage that you now read with fresh eyes, new eyes, having walked where Jesus walked.
3: Great question. Um, Probably the one that, uh, well, there are multiple ones, but I think the one that comes to my mind quickly, maybe because we were traveling with our grandchildren, were when Jesus said, let the little children Come to me mm-hmm. and how humbling that is to think that our God, who revealed himself uh, through the person of Jesus Christ, saw value in life and the fact that he wanted the children to come to him to be a part of it that he drew them in and so as we walk those areas of the holy Land, I realize the fact that you know even little children were fascinated with him and wanted to kind of run along behind and catch up with him and we think of the of the little boy who brought uh, his small amount of what he had in far and bread and offered it to Jesus, even the little ones wanted to do something that would kind of so-called, in their minds, help Jesus. And I think about raising our own children, my opportunity to impact uh, children that I work with, even in my local church, Mm -hmm. and helping them to understand that God just wants you to give yourself to Him and let Him do the rest through your life. I I love those illustrations in that particular verse. It just reminds us how much God loves the little children.
0: How would you say visiting the Holy Land shaped your life as an entrepreneur? You're involved in so many different ministries and business ventures, and yet I'm sure there's, there's long-lasting impact from your, your trip to the Holy Land.
3: Well, most definitely. I think that one of the things that it reaffirmed for me is there's a lot of people go through their life and they feel like they kind of separate their faith uh, and maybe their work or maybe their personal life and their professional life. What it reminded me of was the importance that, you know, your faith is your walk of life. It is it is the decisions that you're making every day. It becomes it, the key important. In fact, it is a value within our family is our Christian faith is number one value that our family talks about a lot. And that faith weaves itself in and out of our day-to-day routine, whether it's going to the grocery store, meeting with other business people in the community, impacting lives at church, wherever we are, what we're doing. There's the reminder that our our faith is central
0: uh, to what we do in life. I cannot help but asking the daughter of the founder of Chick-fil-A, what about opening up a restaurant in Israel? Any thoughts?
3: (laughs) Well, you know, anywhere we can have an opportunity to impact lives, we were very much open for that. Uh We like to tell people we're really not not in the chicken business, we're actually in the people business. So we enjoy the opportunity of influence. Who knows, someday we'll be there. Yeah.
0: At the age of 19, she ran a Chick-fil-A restaurant. Our guest today on The Land and the Book is the daughter of Truett and Jeanette Cathy. You know, since we're on the subject of Chick-fil-A, you know, I just marvel at the universally satisfying customer experience I have whenever I visit a Chick-fil-A. The people are always polite. They're always going out of their way, Uh, almost shocking at times. I have to imagine that Jesus is somehow factoring into that. I mean, valuing people is something Jesus did, serving people is something Jesus did. Uh, Talk about that component to the work.
3: Well, first of all, let me tell you, our Chick-fil-A operators are just outstanding Uh, they are there not for an investment into a business, but for an investment into the lives of those around them. And that's what shows up, John, like when you go to eat there, other people, they recognize that customer service is so unique. And oftentimes we talk about a second mile service, but also part of our our business concept is the fact that, you know, we base our business decisions on biblical principles and those seem to work, you know, and I don't know why that surprises (laughs) anybody, (laughs) but they go hand in hand from the very beginning when my dad got into the restaurant business, he discovered uh, very early on that a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches, what it says in Proverbs 22.1. And one of the ways he realized that he could build a good name or a great reputation was to look at biblical principles and apply those. So we're to love God, we're to love others, and one of the greatest ways we honor the Lord is how we serve.
0: As we steer our conversation toward motherhood, let me ask you, who's your favorite mother in the Bible and why? Mine is Hannah, the mother of Samuel. I love her mm-hmm. persistence. I love her quiet humility and yet her determination to uh, see a, a baby of some kind in her life, and it happened for her. What about you?
3: Yeah, I you know, I go to the mother of Jesus. I think about uh, what that journey could have possibly been like for her as a young mother to be pregnant, carrying the Lord, the Savior of the world. Mm. And and I love her prayer afterwards when she talks about that, you know, just the humility that she displayed. My mother often reminded us that she wanted us to realize the fact we need to remember who we are and whose we are. Mm. And I think that um, Mary, as the mother of of Jesus, realized the fact that she walked humbly before the Lord. She raised the child in a way that he would Walk in the ways of the Lord, and uh, a tremendous example for all of us of uh, of how she, in humility, uh, mm. took on the role that she had been given.
0: What's one biblical mother who, in your judgment, maybe doesn't quite get the press she deserves?
3: <laughs> well, now I would think there are probably several of them out there, and it's interesting that so many of the women of the Bible have almost a, a supporting role in what they do, and yet it's extremely significant. I compare that to even even my mother because I wrote this book, A Quiet Strength. I, I wanted the people to realize that, you know, in life, you don't have to be in the spotlight. You don't have to be on the stage all the time. But, oh, my goodness, the impact you can have by coming alongside and supporting uh, the work of the Lord and what's going on. And in that particular uh, way, you are going to add so much significance to the kingdom, and to the people around you in terms of influence, for sure. Hmm.
0: She's a beloved leader, communicator, and entrepreneur, as well as the author of A Quiet Strength. And like her mother, Trudy Kathy White lives her life based on biblical principles and by serving and loving others. What about your own mom, Jeanette? How did she impact you spiritually?
3: Much of my mom's impact on my life came from her experiences as a young girl. Her Earthly father walked away from her when she was a baby in arms, so she never knew her earthly father. When she was five years old, someone introduced her to her heavenly father, who became her perfect father. She never had any regrets. She was so appreciative for the blessing that she was able to walk alongside uh, a heavenly father who would take care of her and protect her. And because of her personal relationship with Jesus Christ, oh my goodness, that was the biggest impact it had on my life, my mother, my mother talked about God. She talked to God. And, and so I grew up in that kind of an atmosphere yes. watching my mother's walk with the Lord. And so much of that impacted my walk of faith. I, I will say one other thing as well. My parents never really protected me from uh, a lot of their discouragement and hard times and, and difficulties because they certainly had their share of it. But they would often come home and share those with us as their children mm-hmm. and say, let's pray about this together. And I'm so grateful for parents that chose to do that, because then I grew, as I grew up, and I would run into some challenges in my own life or discouragement, and I would say, well, this is kind of normal. I saw my parents do this as well. Yeah. And so my first step in discouragement is to take it to the Lord.
0: I love some of the chapter titles, by the way, Misadventures in Marriage, <laughs> A Cowheart for Christmas, and The First Lady <laughs> of Chick-fil-A. Hey, what's the one message you want readers to take away from reading your book, A Quiet Strength?
3: Well, I, th- I think the biggest message is a source of encouragement of how you can flourish in your life, even in the midst of difficulties um, and challenging situations. No doubt that is what is all throughout that book. And they're they're filled with stories of my mom's life. My mother was really on the backside of the family. She was not someone that was seen very much, but she was a spiritual compass for my dad, She was a cheerleader for her children. She was a prayer warrior for her her grandchildren. So I think anybody that gets their hands on this book will recognize the fact that what it says in Isaiah, it says, in quietness and in trust shall be your strength. And so if you're looking how how to be strong in life, you'll have to understand that being quiet is important and learning how to trust God is important. And so that's weaved in and out all these stories in that book.
0: I'm guessing there were things along the way as you wrote and collected stories that impressed you, maybe caught you off guard. Uh, What comes to mind?
3: Well, when I thought about writing this book, I thought, I'm not the only one that knows all these stories about my mom. There are other people. So we did have a chance to grab stories from other ones. And I think one of the things that I found out was that my mother washed dishes in my dad's restaurant when they first got married. Now, I knew she was a waitress. But I did not know she uh, had a role in the kitchen of washing dishes. And because she washed dishes in the kitchen, she got to interact with a lot of employees that my dad had, and she made a tremendous impact on their life. And some of those people are still around, and they were sharing about conversations that they would have with my mother while they washed dishes. Uh, She took advantage of every opportunity she had to be able to influence others around
0: her. What a great life, and uh, so beautifully illustrated in your book, A Quiet Strength, a link to the book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. A pleasure talking with you today. Trudy, thanks so much for your time.
3: John, thanks for having me on. I thank you very
0: much. And we're looking forward to welcoming Charlie Dyer back right after this here on The Land and the Book. Appreciate your hanging out with us here at The Land and the Book for our Q&A segment next. I'm John Gager with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Q&A, of course, questions and answers. Charlie, where do the questions come from? Uh, from listeners. Uh, if they're
1: uh, reading through the Bible or reading something, had a question, they they send an email, and I just love it. So whatever they're fascinated in, I'm fascinated in studying and sharing.
0: Okay, let's dig into our questions for today. The first from Terry, who takes us to Acts 24, verse 20. Uh, He says there appears to be a partial incomplete sentence, unfinished thought, or sentence fragment. The rest of Acts and the entire whole Bible that I recall is in complete sentences unless I'm forgetting some verses like this. Can you explain why this is a seemingly unfinished sentence?
1: Yeah, and I know in English we're taught to try and avoid starting a sentence with a conjunction like the word or— uh, but it's actually technically not incorrect. And in spoken language like Paul's speech, which is what's going on there in that chapter, uh, we do tend to be more informal. Now, here's what I think's happening. Paul has been formally charged before the governor by an attorney who's speaking on behalf of the high priest and other Jewish leaders. And the main charges lodged against Paul were insurrection. They said he's a troublemaker, stirring up riots and desecrating the temple by bringing in Gentiles. He tried to desecrate the temple they charge. Now, both charges, by the way, are capital offenses. So Paul begins his defense by denying both charges and explaining why he was in Jerusalem. And then he gets to the main legal issue, and he says, that was Jews from Asia who really started the riot, and they ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or else, if they've left it up to the religious leaders to bring charges, then the religious leaders should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Paul then adds that the real issue that upset them is the issue of whether someone can rise from the dead. Now, in a purely grammatical sense, verse 20 is a complete sentence. But in the larger context, it actually functions as the second part of Paul's answer to those two charges. It's as if Paul's saying, they, the ones who aren't present, ought to be the ones here bringing the charges of causing the riot since they, not the ones here today, were the ones who spotted me in the temple. Or, option number two, if the ones here today want to bring charges against me, they ought to focus on what happened when I met with them in the Sanhedrin after my arrest in the temple. Uh, The or is used to separate those two groups of individuals. So in essence, Paul's saying the witnesses in front of the governor aren't qualified because they weren't eyewitnesses to the actual events. And those who are present today already reviewed the issues and refused to come to a firm conclusion. So in actuality, it's a pretty neat piece of legal maneuvering on Paul's part.
0: Hmm. Well, let's go to Peter's question. He takes us to 1 Chronicles 29 pointing out that about two-thirds of the way through verse 11, David is quoted as saying, This is your kingdom. It's as if King David is saying, This, what you see here, is your kingdom. Peter says, I was curious, so using Bible Gateway, I looked at all English versions of that verse. Most versions render the phrase as some form of the kingdom is yours, pointing to the kingdom, which I understand as meaning the kingdom of heaven. Only two versions say this is your kingdom. Do you think I'm making a big deal about nothing? Yeah. And actually, I don't think there's an either or answer here.
1: Uh, The verses are bracketed by the account of David and the people giving their resources. uh, So David's son Solomon could eventually build the temple. So in one sense, uh, there is a here and now focus on Jerusalem and Mount Moriah and the house of my God. In that sense, David was focusing on the kingdom of Israel along with the temple being prepared in Jerusalem. But he also acknowledges that even the offering they brought didn't really come from them. He says, everything comes from you. And he's referring to God. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. And that's why I believe in verses 11 and 12, David stresses the awesomeness of God. He wants to put what they've done in focus by pointing everyone to the majesty of the God they serve. Anyway, I think David's primary focus is on God's rule over both the heavens and the earth. It's more than just heaven or God's future kingdom in heaven, but it's also more than just the kingdom David was overseeing in Jerusalem. He's acknowledging God's dominion and rule
0: over all the earth. It's the Land and the Book from Moody Radio with Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host. We're looking at questions that have come into us, and yours is welcome at the land and the book at Moody.edu. From Alan, this question: When Jesus rose from the dead, God caused the earthquake and the angel to move the stone away from the tomb. The stone was moved so that we, through Peter, John, and others, could see the tomb was empty. When the dead in Christ will rise from their graves in the rapture, their bodies will not be held back by the six feet of dirt above them. If their graves will not be opened, the world will not know they're gone. So will their graves be opened so the world will see that their graves are empty? I know this is speculative, but do you know of any scripture about this?
1: Well, and I have to start with the uh, the first part. You're right. The angel did roll away the stone at the time of Jesus' resurrection, not to let Jesus get out of the grave. Uh, That wasn't required. You know, in John 20, Jesus could appear inside a locked room with his disciples, and he did the same thing a second time one week later, and he was able to miraculously disappear from the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So. Yeah, I think you're right. The stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could get out. It was rolled away so that others could look in and verify he'd risen from the dead. Now, the problem though in trying to decide how the circumstances of Jesus' resurrection apply to the future resurrection of the dead, uh, that's a little tougher because we're not told God will open graves to provide proof of the resurrection at the time of the rapture. Uh, Certainly, the disappearance of believers who are alive at that time would be far more noticeable. And yet, even in that case, Paul says uh, Satan and God are going to provide some sort of deception or delusion to help explain away that event, along with the arrival of the Antichrist. So sadly, I can't think of any other scriptures that might help provide additional
0: insight. Laurie says, I recently heard a teaching on the gap theory, and uh, this pastor read Genesis 1 verse 28 and Genesis 9 verse 1. And in both verses, using the King James Version, it says, multiply and replenish the earth. I looked up several other versions, and not one says to replenish the earth. The word is totally taken out. Can you help me understand this? Was there really a gap in between Genesis one, 1 and two? 1, and some people argue about that now. How could such an important word be taken out?
1: Yeah, and the Hebrew word that's used there in Genesis 1.28 and 9.1 is a word that normally means fill up or be full. And I'm afraid the pastor is trying to read more into the English translation than is demanded by the Hebrew Uh, That particular Hebrew word is used nearly 250 times in the Old Testament. And of those occurrences, uh, the King James Version translates it as fill or full over 150 times, but replenish only seven. In other words, the normal meaning of the word, even in the King James Version, is to fill up or be full. Now, in terms of Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2, I believe verse 1 is a summary statement. It describes what God did. He created the heavens and the earth. Then beginning in verse two, we're told how he did it. Now, I personally don't see a gap in time between those verses. I see the creation account being completed in six days with God then resting on the seventh. And in fact, Exodus 20, verse 11 provides a good summary of creation. It says, for in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. This verse says God made the heavens and the earth. That's the same word used in Genesis 1, 1 during that six-day creation period.
0: Eileen says, thank you so much for providing such an excellent program. She listens on KHCB Christian Radio in Houston. And uh, she says, here's my question. Who was the mom referred to in Joseph's dream in Genesis 37, verse 9 and 10? If the dream refers to Rachel bowing down to Joseph, then Benjamin would not have been born yet meaning there were only 10 brothers besides Joseph. If Benjamin had already been born, allowing for 11 stars to bow down, then Rachel would be dead. Can you clear up this detail for me?
1: Yeah, and I have to start with the assumption that Benjamin had already been born by the time of Joseph's dream since the account of Benjamin's birth was already recorded in Genesis 35. And of course, that means Rachel had also died before the time of Joseph's dream since she died giving birth to Benjamin. So in light of that, I take Jacob's reference to your mother there in chapter 37 to be pointing to Leah. She was the surviving wife of Jacob. You know, Bilhah and Zilpah, who gave birth to several of Jacob's sons, were called maidservants or handmaids. and They didn't have the status of an official wife. Though Leah was not the physical mother of Joseph, it would still be natural for Jacob to assume the dream referred to her since she was his wife. While the word for mother normally refers to an actual mother. That that word was also broad enough to refer to a grandmother in first Kings fifteen and even an entire city in second Samuel twenty. So Leah was the only living wife of Jacob at the time, and I just think it's natural for him to refer to her as your mother when speaking to Joseph. I'll give an illustration. It'd be similar to someone in a blended family today where a father might say to his young children, Listen to your mother, even though his current wife might not be the one who actually gave
0: birth to all of them. Hal takes us to Matthew ten. In verse 2, Jesus sent out the disciples. They were called apostles. And Judas is listed with the group. Was Judas able to do what the other apostles did, or do we just not have enough information? You know, from what we're told in the
1: text, it seems Judas was able to do what the others were doing when they were sent out. Now, that's a good reminder that people can look very good and godly while still not possessing real eternal life. It's sad to think about all that Judas saw and did and then realize that he was still able to turn his back on Jesus. I'm reminded of what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Uh, Judas is a sad reminder to all of us to make sure we're possessors and not just professors.
0: Well, that's a great insight to land this segment on. Charlie Dyer answering your questions here on The Land and the Book. Up next, his devotional right here. Welcome back to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Gager, confessing that uh, at our house, I don't do well with the scheduling. And when it comes to balancing the checkbook, that's for my wife, too. She handles both of those things. But we have a calendar issue coming up in today's devotional, Charlie, and a number as well. And I'm not good at either, so I'm curious. What is the ninth of Av, and what's it got to do with today's devotional?
1: Uh, It has everything to do with today's devotional, and it's a very significant day in the Hebrew calendar that's not as well-known for those who don't have a Jewish background.
0: I suspect we'll get to know it just a bit better as your devotional comes to life in just a moment. First, though, this Holy Land experience, a testimony from someone who's been to the Holy Land and wanted to share this with you and me. My
3: name is Nita Tin, and I was on the uh, Moody tour and It was such a wonderful experience. If you want to get closer to the Lord, what better place than to come to where He walked? And as I think of the song, I walked today where Jesus walked, that became so real. And just reading the Bible is going to make it so different just because you've been there in the land where Jesus was. And uh, especially for me was um, where Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, and where he cried, Not my will, but thine be done. And that was so special to me because of what he has done for me and how he
0: has saved me. Thanks so much. I love these Holy Land experiences. And Charlie, we hear from so many people that love your devotionals as well. I'll get out of the way and let you take us to the ninth of Av. Ah, thanks, John. Well, most countries
1: have national days of tragedy, days when they remember specific events that seem to impact everyone. For Americans, December 7, the day the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, or September 11, the day of the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Well, there, there are two such dates. But for Israel, one particular date seems to stand out for its universal sense of sadness and loss. And yet it's a date that few outside Judaism know. It's Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the Jewish month of Av. But what is Tisha B'Av and why is it so significant? Well, Tisha is the Hebrew word for nine. And Av is the fifth month in the Hebrew year that begins in the spring with the month of Nisan. In their calendar, the month of Av usually occurs around mid-July to mid-August. But because of the nature of the Jewish calendar, the exact date on our calendar varies from year to year. Tisha B'Av is a date when multiple misfortunes have befallen the Jewish people. Here's just a partial list of events that took place on the 9th of Av. The first Jewish temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. The second Jewish temple was destroyed by the Romans in AD 70. The second Jewish revolt against Rome was crushed in AD 132, and more than 100,000 Jews were killed on that one day. One year later, the Roman commander in Jerusalem ordered the site of the Jewish temple plowed up on that day. It's the day when the Jews were expelled from England in 1290, the day they were expelled from France in 1306, and the day they were expelled from Spain in 1492. It's easy to see why the ninth of Av, Tisha B'Av, became a day of fasting for the Jewish people. Sadly, this string of tragedies didn't have to begin with the destruction of Solomon's temple. To understand why, head back in time with me to the days of Jeremiah the prophet. As we approach Solomon's temple in Jerusalem, we see a lone man facing a crowd of people gathered at the gate leading into the temple complex. Some are listening, but others are shaking their heads in disagreement or simply ignoring Jeremiah's dark message of gloom. We stop to listen. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. Well, the nation chose to ignore God's word of warning sounded by Jeremiah and sadly, they paid the price. The nation was crushed, Jerusalem destroyed, the temple torn down, and the people carried into exile. Actions have consequences, and the nation learned too late that God cared more about faithful obedience than he did about the temple building itself, a building they saw as a talisman, a good luck charm that would somehow ward off judgment. Following its destruction, the people set aside the 9th of Av as a day of fasting and mourning to remember this tragic event. But 70 years later, the situation appeared to change. A remnant were allowed to return to the land and begin rebuilding the temple. Eventually, a more humble structure was built, and the worship of God resumed in Jerusalem. But this actually created a problem. Should the remnant continue to mourn and fast over the destruction of the original temple? Or should they cease fasting now that a new temple has been built? So let's travel forward to the time of the prophet Zechariah. We're standing at the same location, though the temple now in front of us is rather plain and simple. A delegation has arrived to ask the priests a question. Should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? And at that precise moment, God provides an answer through Zechariah. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? The people had added a fast on Tisha B'Av to go along with the fast on the Day of Atonement, but God saw into their hearts and realized these fasts were nothing more than outward displays of piety that weren't matched by a genuine heart attitude. Zechariah then summarizes many of the sins denounced seven decades earlier by Jeremiah, to show that the hearts of the people hadn't really changed. Jeremiah had called on the people to do what is just and right. And now Zechariah reaffirms the need to administer true justice. He also adds the word hesed, loyal love, sometimes translated as mercy or kindness. It pictures covenant faithfulness, a willingness to be men and women of their word. And he calls on them to demonstrate these characteristics each to his neighbor And this includes the most vulnerable of society, the widow, the fatherless, the alien, and the poor, the ones least able to pay a person back for their kindness. (laughs) This sounds like a downer of a devotional, doesn't it? In one sense, it is, because sin brings sad consequences. But Zechariah ends his message on a positive note. He looks beyond the problems of his day and reminds the people of God's sure promise of hope. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. God promises to someday return to bring about a time of peace, truth, justice, and holiness. Sounds too good to be true? God answers that objection. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me? asks God. After all, God can do anything. And as for Tisha B'Av and all the other days of fasting, this is what the Lord Almighty says. The fasts of the fourth, fifth, seventh, and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Someday, the sadness of Tisha B'Av will be replaced by joy and gladness when God returns to fulfill His promises. Well, it's time for us to return from the days of Jeremiah and Zechariah back to the 21st century. But as we do, what can we take along that can help us with all the problems we face today? I think, first of all, we need to remember that God expects us to walk a different path from those around us. We're to be speakers of truth, seekers of peace, and doers of justice, all the while living lives of holiness. And second, we can focus on the promise made over and over again in God's Word that His Son is coming back. Keeping that sure hope before us gives us the motivation to live in a way that pleases Him. Peter perhaps said it best in 2 Peter 3, 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with
0: Him. Thank you, Charlie. And you can hear today's program again in its entirety at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Listen, if you have discovered this broadcast and appreciate its impact in your life, why not share us with a friend? Uh, You know, not everybody lives within listening range of a radio station, but they can always enjoy the podcast at thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. Our email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That'll do it for today's edition of The Land and the Book, which is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.